0: Today's episode of Truth and Justice is sponsored in part by Sean T. Fitness. This Thursday on ABC, Sean T. is hosting a brand new series called My Diet is Better Than Yours. This show is not just about losing weight. It's about helping the contestants have substantial weight loss and long-term health. Tune in to find out what diet works best and to get tips on how to enhance your nutrition. Some plans you may love and others you may not, but it's all about what works best for you. Shauntee wants you to love yourself from the inside out. The first show airs this Thursday, January 7th at 9 p.m., 8 p.m. Central on ABC. Today's episode is also sponsored by the Texas Tech University School of Law. If you like this podcast and are thinking about law school, you should consider Texas Tech. The law school offers a criminal law seminar based on the Anand Syed case, as presented here and in both serial and undisclosed. It also has seven live client clinics, including a capital defense clinic and a public service graduation requirement. It's a school that believes in giving back and in making sure that its students are ready to practice law. They are now accepting applications for fall of 2016 and will waive the application fee for those referred by this sponsorship announcement. To learn more, visit www.law.ttu.edu. Slash truth and justice. All one word. One more time. That's www.law.ttu.edu slash truth and justice. Hello everyone and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I hope that all of you had a wonderful Christmas holiday. And I'm actually recording this on New Year's Eve, but by the time you hear this, you will have rolled in the new year. So happy 2016, everyone. Before we get started today, I have a couple of announcements. For starters, I'm sure most of you noticed that our numbering system for the episodes has changed. Today's episode is episode number 202. You're all pretty bright, so I'm sure you've already figured this out. But just to clarify, this is not the 202nd episode of the Truth and Justice podcast. In order to maintain clarity for everyone to know which case we're discussing in which episode, I'm going to start numbering the episodes based on the case that we're working. So the Adnan Syed Hayman Lee case is case number one. The Kenny the Blizzard Snow case will be case number two. So I've went back and renumbered all of the episodes that involved the Annon Syed case and put a one in front of them. And I'll be doing the same thing for Kenny Snow's case. I'll have a two in front of them. So later down the road, if someone wants to get on the podcast and just listen through the Kenny Snow case, they'll know that they can start with episode 201 and work their way through that. But I'm only taking the time to mention this because I did have at least one listener <laughs> email me and ask me what happened to the first 100 episodes and while we're on the subject of the multiple cases that we're working as you all know we spent several months discussing the hayman lee and sayed case we just recently began the kenny snow case i have at least three other cases that i'm interested in that i'm starting to do research on right now they're spread out all over the country but we're starting to get going on those as well and i just wanted to give a quick update and fill you in on what's going on with the annon sayed case Um, I did spend about two hours on the phone with Jim Clemente a couple of nights ago. This wasn't an interview. We were just working the investigation together. We were going through crime scene photos and documents over the phone and working through a few theories and also remedies. So Jim is currently digging a lot deeper into the case as we speak. Laura Richards was out of the country for the holidays, so when she gets back they're going to compare notes. They will definitely be coming back on the podcast, but they are right now mostly concerned with the active investigation. Their involvement in this case is not just to be an interview on the podcast, they are actually consulting on the investigation, which is incredibly helpful. And Jim and I started to work through some ideas about where we can go from here if we do indeed prove that someone other than Adnanze had committed this crime. So I'm really excited about what's happening with Jim and Laura. I'm really looking forward to them coming back on the air. But just know for now that Jim is still actively working on the case, and he's starting to get pretty deeply into it. As for today's episode, today we're still covering the Kenny Snow case. As I mentioned, today is New Year's Eve, and for those of you that remember, today was my very last day as a full-time firefighter. I left the station today after my last official shift, and on the ride home, I started to contemplate, why am I doing this? And I know why I'm doing it, but it was an emotional thing to walk away from that firehouse. And it really got me thinking about where I'm going from here. And so I asked myself that question. Why am I doing this? And I think a man by the name of Edmund Burke answered this question best in just one sentence. In the 1770s, Burke said, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. That's why I'm doing this. That's why you're doing this. As I've launched myself into this process of investigating possible wrongful convictions, my entire viewpoint on our criminal justice system has changed. I've experienced real changes in my way of thinking. I hope all of you over the last couple of weeks since the last episode watched the Netflix series Making a Murderer. This isn't a paid advertisement, they did advertise on our last episode, but on a personal note, I did watch the Making a Murderer series, and it's something that all of you need to watch. It's about another case of incredibly horrible injustice. I look at cases like Anand Syed's and Kenny Snow's, I've done lots of research on Rodney Reed from Texas, the West Memphis Three, there's just so many of these cases our new email address, com, is already getting flooded with requests for my help on new cases. Everyone I look into just scares the hell out of me. Before starting this journey, I was a person that was very pro-death penalty. I remember times in the past when I would joke about the state of Texas. I would say, if you kill someone in Texas, they'll kill you back. I had this naive idea in my mind that only guilty people are in prison. It never really occurred to me how many people are sitting behind bars, even on death row, that not only are innocent of the crimes they were accused of, but that were not even put there by accident. People that were incarcerated because of intentional misconduct and malfeasance. Many of these people, I would say the majority of these people, are individuals without the resources to fight. I want to make clear that I am a huge supporter of law enforcement. I've said many times that I know lots and lots of cops. I spend time with them socially. I work with them. And the overwhelming majority of police officers are good people. But the fact is that they're people. And in the cross-section of any segment of our population, there are going to be exceptionally good men and women, and there are going to be exceptionally bad men and women. And there are bad cops. There are bad prosecutors and judges. I think it's clear to see at this point that our criminal justice system is not immune from corruption. And the effects of corruption in the justice system leads to the taking away of so many lives. So many times the underprivileged are the ones that get caught up in this mess. Corrupt police officers, corrupt prosecutors and judges. They target these people, the people that don't have the means to defend themselves. They use them to get their clearances. They use them to clean up their messes. And in their minds, nobody cares about this poor person from the wrong side of the tracks that's spending the rest of their life behind bars. But everyone that is sitting in prison today all around this country is a real person. They have real families. People that love them. People that need them. And it doesn't matter how much money is in their bank account. Happiness, love, loyalty. These things aren't measured in dollars and cents. I don't believe in the death penalty anymore. I've now seen this system for what it really is. I've seen the effects of real people who have been affected by its malfeasance, and even its honest mistakes. I don't believe that our jury system works. And I don't believe that jurors have any bad intentions. It's just a bad system. And I don't know what the solution is. But so many times as I investigate these cases, I see juries who have had the wool pulled over their eyes by a well-spoken, articulate closing argument from the prosecution. Look at Anand Syed's case. The closing arguments made by Yurik and Murphy did not represent the facts. They were not supported by the evidence and the testimony that had been presented during the trial. But after weeks and weeks go by of jurors spending all day in that box listening to testimony, listening to experts, the likelihood of them retaining all of that information is next to nothing. I think about this as an instructor. One of the greatest challenges of being a teacher is to try to find ways to get your students to retain what you're teaching them. And it's no easy task. Even teaching an undisputed lesson with visual aids in a one-hour classroom session, there's always going to be a bell curve of retention. If you give a test or a quiz after the class, some of the students will get an average score. A select few will score higher than average, and another select few will fail. When we ask questions like, how could a jury have possibly convicted a man like Stephen Avery after that case, I can see exactly how it happens. All it takes is for some of the jurors not to be paying attention, or not to be the greatest students, or to not have a very good memory, or to have some sort of confirmation bias. Any of those things or a combination of them can and will result in an unreliable verdict. And the idea of taking that unreliable verdict and using that to put a human being to their death now sounds inconceivable to me. Good men, innocent men, have lost decades of their lives behind bars. And it's tragic. And I will fight for them. I will be their voice. But you can't fight for a corpse. There are documented cases in this country... Where it is absolutely known where innocent men have been executed for crimes that they did not commit. So why am I doing this? Because I refuse to let evil triumph without putting up a fight. The case we're covering right now is about a lot more than just Kenny Snow. There is a systematic problem in the Smith County, Texas justice system, and that's our ultimate goal, is to find the truth, expose corruption, and demand change on a global level. The first step in investigating the case of Kenny Snow's possible wrongful incarceration is to lay down a solid foundation. Kenny has made some pretty extreme allegations, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, Is it possible for the allegations that he has made against officials in Tyler, Texas to have occurred? To answer that question, I'm going to tell you the story today of a man named Cary Max Cook. Cary Max Cook is the author of the book that I've been recommending to all of you called Chasing Justice, and he is also the subject. The information that I'm going to cover in this episode comes from several sources. Most of these sources you can find online and check for yourselves. The citations include a Dallas News article written by Brandy Grissom, titled, Years After Being Freed from Death Row, East Texas Man Fights to Clear His Name. It's another article written by Kerry Max Cook called Smith County Justice. An article from Texas Monthly called The Last Man Exonerated, written by Michael Hall. And much of the information comes from Kerry Max Cook himself, from his book, Chasing Justice. And also from various court filings on the case. Carrie Max Cook was convicted of raping, murdering, and mutilating a woman named Linda Jo Edwards in Tyler, Texas in 1977. He was sentenced to death. Linda Jo Edwards had been raped, stabbed, beaten, and mutilated in her apartment. In her first statement to the police, Edward's roommate told of seeing a man at the apartment who she assumed was James Mayfield. Mayfield was a married man with whom Edwards was having an affair with. But according to Mayfield, the affair had ended three weeks before the murder. He testified that on the night of the murder, he was at home with his family, and he hadn't seen or had any sexual relations with the victim in several weeks. Edward's roommate described the man she saw as having gray or silver hair, as an older man. Carrie Cook was a young man at the time and did not fit the description. And yet still, the Tyler police zeroed in on Carrie Max Cook. Kerry lived in the same apartment complex, and his fingerprints were found on a patio door in Miss Edwards' apartment. Cook's first trial was in 1978, and the prosecution made a strong case, strong enough to obtain a conviction and a death sentence. The most damning evidence in the trial was from the testimony of a detective. He testified at the trial that he could date the fingerprints. You see, Kerry Max Cook never denies being in the apartment. He was friends with the woman who was murdered. He had been in there on several occasions, as they were neighbors. But this detective testified that he was able to prove that the fingerprints on the patio door had to have occurred during the time when the murder occurred. Now, you and I know that that's ridiculous. There's no time stamp on a fingerprint. But he said it, and the jury bought it. Other pieces of key evidence was the fact that the roommate, who in her statements had clearly described the victim's boyfriend as being in the apartment at the time of the murder, now at trial changes her statement and identifies Carrie Max Cook as the man who she saw in the apartment that night. Another piece of damning evidence at trial was the testimony of a jailhouse snitch. Now this is very relevant to our case, because as you'll remember, Kenny Snow says that the reason he was ever in the Smith County Jail to begin with was for the purpose of him obtaining a confession by the man named Edward Attes, who was later convicted of murder because of Kenny's testimony. Kenny says that he was forced to perjure himself and give the false testimony in order to get out of jail. Otherwise, he would face spending the rest of his life in prison. In Cook's case, the man who testified against him went by the name of Shyster. His actual name is Edward Scott Jackson. Scheister testified at trial that he had heard Carrie Max Cook confess to the crime while in jail. According to Cook, prosecutors A.D. Clark III and Michael Thompson told Scheister that if he would help them obtain a conviction and a death sentence, they would drop his charge from murder to involuntary manslaughter and give him credit for the 22 months he had already served in the Smith County Jail. And the records do show that is exactly what happened. After Cook was convicted and sentenced to death, Scheister's charge was dropped to involuntary manslaughter, he was giving credits for the 22 months he had already served, and he was set free. But shortly after Scheister was set free, he recanted his testimony. He reported to the Dallas Morning News that he had made a deal to give false testimony and implicate Cook's in Edwards' murder. After this information became public, one of the prosecutors that forged the deal with Scheister, Michael Thompson, shot himself to death with a shotgun. Another key witness in the case was a man named Robert Hain, that's H-O-E-H-N, and this one was a little strange. Hain was a gay man. He testified that on the night of the murder, he and Cook watched a movie called The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea. Hain testified that he would performed sex acts on Cook, who also masturbated during a scene involving the torture of a cat. The prosecution presented a theory that Cook had become aroused by the scene with the torture of the cat and decided to take a sexual frustration out on whom they deemed a stranger. You see, part of the prosecution's case was that Carrie Max Cook did not know Miss Edwards, that they had never met and she was a perfect stranger. It was later discovered that there was multiple witnesses who they had suppressed that confirmed that Carrie Max Cook and Linda Jo Edwards did indeed know each other and had spent time together socially in the past but the jury never heard that information. The prosecution pitched this case to a jury, and Cook was convicted, and Kerry Max Cook began his tenure on death row. (music) Cook kept fighting, and in 1991, his sentence was overturned on a technicality and sent back to the trial court. At this point, a man by the name of Jack Skeen had been elected the Smith County DA. He'd been serving in that capacity since 1983. Jack Skeen is a name that you're going to become more familiar with, as Kenny Snow alleges that Jack Skeen was also involved in his case. According to Kenny, Skeen was implicit in the deal that was made to force him to give a false testimony in order to avoid a lifetime in prison for a crime he didn't commit. In 1992, Terry Max Cook was tried again. This time the case was moved to Williamson County, but it ended in a hung jury and a mistrial. By this point, other evidence that suggested prosecutorial misconduct had been revealed. For example, the state hadn't turned over evidence that Mayfield's teenage daughter, remember Mayfield was the man that Edwards was having an affair with, had repeatedly threatened to kill Edwards in the weeks before her death. It was also discovered that Hain, that was the homosexual man that claimed that he was with Carrie Max Cook on the night of the murder, had originally testified to the grand jury that he had not had sex with Cook. And he also said in the grand jury that Cook had paid no attention to the movie that was on that night. And even more damning was the fact that the state had not revealed a written statement from the detective who had testified about the fingerprints. In his written statement, he had told the prosecutors that the idea that the fingerprints could be dated and time-stamped was unsound and could not be backed up by any science. He also stated that the prosecutors pressed him to give the testimony anyway. And he did. And in Carrie Max Cook's words, to devastating effect. So even after all of this information had been gathered, and the state's case had almost completely been dismantled, in 1994, Kerry Max cook was tried again, this time without the testimony of the snitch or the detective regarding the age of the fingerprints. The state was, however, allowed to use the testimony of Mr. Hayne. He had recently died, so he wasn't around to refute the fact that he was pressured into giving this testimony. At that trial, Cook was again found guilty, And again, he was sentenced to death. We're going to take a quick break here to hear about our sponsor, and then we'll get back to the story. In 1996, things were finally looking up for Kerry Max Cook. That was when the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals reversed his last conviction, pointing to the massive official misconduct. The majority opinion stated, quote, prosecutorial and police misconduct has tainted this entire matter from the outset. Cook made bail in 1997, and he actually got to go home. But the state wasn't giving up. They began preparations to try him again. Jack Skeen was still convinced of Carrie Max Cook's guilt, but in an attempt to head off the trial, he offered Cook a deal plead guilty, be sentenced to time served, and go home. But Cook refused the deal. He still swore that he was innocent. In early 1999, the victim's underwear were sent to the DPS lab for modern forensic testing. On February 5th of that year, the lab confirmed the presence of semen. Six days later, Cook gave his own blood sample to be compared. The next day, and this was before the results of the DNA test came back, Skeen's office made another offer a no contest plea. With this plea, Cook could maintain his innocence but would have to acknowledge that witnesses against him, quote, would testify sufficiently to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he had killed Edwards. Again, Cook refused. On February 16th, the DA came back with a final offer, a no-contest plea deal in which Cook would maintain his innocence and would only have to acknowledge that there was evidence that the state would offer to try to convict him. This time, Cook took the deal. He said that he didn't want to run the risk of another trial, another guilty verdict, and another death sentence in what he calls, quote, law and order Smith County. Two months later, after Cook had been released, the DNA test results came back. And guess who the seaman belonged to? None other than James Mayfield, the man who was having an affair with Linda Joe Edwards, the man that the roommate originally said that she saw in the apartment. In researching this case, it occurred to me that the people who live in Tyler, Texas, have a pretty wide range of the type of town that it is. And the opinions seem to all depend upon which side of the tracks you live on. I received this email from listener Stephanie. Stephanie says, I love your show and I sincerely hope you were wrong about Smith County. I am a resident of Tyler, Texas and love it here and would hate to believe our justice system is as bad as you say in your new episode. I will be listening with an open mind, but just so you know, Tyler, Texas is a great place to live and raise a family. Thanks, Stephanie. So Stephanie's perspective is that Tyler, Texas is a great place to be. It's wonderful. But then within 10 minutes of receiving that one, I get a very long, scathing email from a listener named Michelle. I'm not going to read you the whole email. I'll just read you the subject line. It says, Tyler, Texas is run by elite lunatics. And you can just imagine the contents of that email. Well, it seems like James Mayfield must have grown up on the correct side of the tracks. Because even after it was proven that Carrie Max Cook had nothing to do with this crime, He was an innocent bystander in collateral damage for a corrupt justice system. Jack Skeen still refuses to admit his innocence. And Kerry Max Cook is still fighting today to obtain an actual exoneration. You see, Cook is still a convicted felon, a convicted murderer and rapist. He's had to move five times. He's married now and has a young child. Parents won't let their kids play with his son. He can't get an apartment. He can't get what he describes as a real job. No one wants to hire a murderer. He's been fighting this battle for nearly 20 years since he's been released. And the struggle that his life has become is not by accident. Even after the DNA test results came back, proving that it was actually Edwards' boyfriend semen that was on her panties, Jack Skeen's office still maintains that the results didn't prove anything. He claims that Mayfield had recently had a sexual relationship with Edwards, and who knew when that semen had been deposited there. As far as Skeen was concerned, Cook was still guilty. I'll remind you from earlier in the episode when I pointed out that according to Mayfield's own testimony, he had not had sex with Linda Jo Edwards for at least three weeks before this occurred. Assistant District Attorney David Dobbs, and that's another name that should sound familiar to you, this is the man that Kenny Snow alleges came into the prison and forced him to testify against Edward Ates. Dobbs is quoted as saying, The important thing for us was to ensure that he got a conviction for murder, and that would follow him for the rest of his life. And up to this point, Dobbs has been successful in doing so. You would think that after being exposed publicly for these types of corruption, the guys like Jack Skeen would lose their job, be disbarred. But you'd be wrong. In 2003, Jack Skeen became the judge of the 241st District Court, which has presented even more problems for Carrie Max Cook. He's still to this day fighting to obtain an actual exoneration for this crime. And Cook doesn't want the prosecutor who stole all these years of his life to be the judge who presides over his case. Carey's case is still active, and it looks like we're getting very close to an actual hearing date. Over the past few years, his lawyer has fought to get the case out of the Smith County court system. In a motion for recusal, Cook's attorneys note new evidence that they say suggests Jack Skeen failed to follow the law. For example, in May of 2011, Carey's lawyers say that they found a polygraph report on the jailhouse snitch. Of course, as I've stated, after being released, the snitch recanted his testimony and went public with it. But what was discovered in 2011 was that a polygraph test had been performed on old shyster the snitch. And the results of that polygraph test were that he was lying. Cook's lawyer writes, the state was unquestionably obligated to provide this highly exculpatory document to the defense. But, of course, the state doesn't see it that way. Carrie Max Cook is just another victim of what is now commonly referred to as Smith County Justice. One of the judges from the Court of Criminal Appeals, Judge Charlie Baird, stated this in one of his opinions. The state's misconduct in this case does not consist of an isolated incident or the doing of a police officer but consists of the deliberate misconduct by members of the bar representing the state over a 14-year period, from the initial discovery proceedings in 1977 through the first trial in 1978 and continuing with the concealment of the misconduct until 1992. So it's not just Carrie Max Cook that thinks that the individuals named in this episode were intentionally corrupt. Even a Texas judge agrees. Now, I know that all of you were hoping to get more information on Kenny's actual case today, and that is coming very soon. With the limited documentation that I have so far, I have already found a few inconsistencies. And I have five different FOIA requests out there right now, and I'm still waiting for a response. But the purpose of giving you the information that I have in today's episode was simply to make you aware of the fact that whether Kenny Snow's allegations are true or false, we don't know yet. But what we do know is that it's not inconceivable that they happened. We know that these types of things have happened before, in the same county, in the same courtroom, involving the same people. There are a lot of parallels in these two cases. There's one in particular that I find very relevant that we'll be discussing next week. I feel very confident that it's not going to take us very long to find the truth in Kenny's case. And part of the reason that I believe that is that we already have help on board. Let me introduce you to a woman by the name of Darby Dickerson. She's the dean of the School of Law at Texas Tech University.
1: The students now have a a 30-hour-a-year pro bono requirement. You know, a lot of the students in the building, even though they don't have the requirement, there are other incentives for them to do that because um, the state bar has a program, and we have a program where we give pro bono honors to students who hit certain milestones. Definitely, there would be some students who would be interested in and helping out with the case and probably some others who maybe they don't have, you know, maybe they don't want to do all of their hours for this, but as research assignments come up, could be interested. So I think we have a cadre of people who we could get matched up to you, some of them dedicated. That's what my my professor and I were talking about is, is there a way for us to get a group of dedicated students who work with you on this? Because you're not a lawyer, they would have to be supervised by a lawyer, so they would need to report through one of my faculty or staff. But I don't, I don't think that's an issue. I think people are going to be excited about it. One unique thing about Texas Tech is we actually, as a law school, serve as the public defender for 12 counties in West Texas. Oh, really? Um, yeah. <laughs> We've taken the dismissal rate in criminal cases in many of the areas from zero to almost 60% because, you know, there were small towns, so someone would get arrested and the prosecutor and the judge, even when a person would ask for an attorney, they would be like, now Sam, you know, you know us from Sunday school and this and that, let's just take uh-huh. care of it. Right. And they would get them to plead. So basically there's been no, in a lot of these areas, there's no public defender structure. We have passed our funds directly to the Innocence Project of Texas and then they work with our students. So I don't know if you had heard about a case involving Tim Cole. Tim was a yeah. Texas Yeah, Tim that was that was our quote unquote our case. Those oh, okay. were our alums, our students were helping on that. Yeah. Right. He was the first one posthumously Cleared, um, exonerated after his death. He wasn't executed; he just died of illness in prison. Right, but we've been involved with that. But anyway, we have a really good relationship with the Innocence Project of Texas, and they have just as of this summer completely changed their leadership. And one of the ones, and I'm, I don't, I still didn't even look up this name. The book is it Carrie,
0: Carrie Max Cook.
1: Name? Yeah, Carrie Max Cook. Mm-hmm. His current attorney. Is on the board of Venus's Project of Texas, and I was just with him a few days ago. That's absolutely fantastic. I think this is going to be a great collaboration. I'm going to send you. Uh
0: Next week on Truth and Justice. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. Thank you to Tate Krupa for creating our logo. Thank you to today's sponsors, Sean T. Fitness and the Texas Tech University School of Law. And as always, thank all of you for your continued engagement. It's exciting to see that I'm already starting to get tons of emails coming in about this new case. I know there's not a whole lot of information out there yet, but as soon as I get it, trust me, you'll have it. In the meantime, if you'd like to research other cases in Smith County in Tyler, Texas, I'd recommend Googling a book called Smith County Justice. This was a book that has supposedly been suppressed. The publisher was allegedly forced to stop publishing the book, and all unpurchased copies were taken off of the shelves. But there is an online version of this book, and it's free. If you Google Smith County Justice, you'll find the book, and you can download the PDF file of it. And also, I know I've recommended it many times, but a great read is Chasing Justice by Carrie Max Cook. There's some court documents that you can find online for Kenny's case and also some appellate documents for the Edward Ates case. So any of you who want to be actively engaged in this investigation, those are some places where you can start your research. Send in any thoughts, theories, or ideas on the case to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. If you have a case that you would like investigated, send those emails into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod. get engaged on Facebook. Our Facebook page is Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff. Stay engaged any way that you can. I look forward to hearing from all of you but as for now I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff and this has been Truth and Justice.